This episode is sponsored by MOA Insurance Plans, administered by Association Member Benefits Advisors. The MOA Insurance Plans program offers a variety of plan options and stands with you at every stage. Whether you are currently serving, transitioning from active service, or retired, learn more at www.moainsurance.com. Thank you for tuning into the third season of MOA's Never Stop Serving podcast, hosted by retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Olivia Nunn, a MOA Life member, and Tony Lombardo, MOA's Director of Audience Engagement. This season, we are sharing war stories from Iraq and Afghanistan, told by the men and women who lived them. This week, we speak with Silver Star recipient DeLorean Sheridan. Sheridan retired from the Air Force as a senior master sergeant after serving more than 20 years. He joined the Air Force in 1999 as a tactical air control party member, deploying to Kosovo and then Afghanistan after September 11th. During his deployment with the 101st Airborne, he decided to enter the pipeline to become a combat controller with the Air Force's Special Operations Command. On March 11, 2013, while deployed with a Special Forces team in Afghanistan, the combat controller was standing with his American and Afghan Special Forces counterparts during a pre-mission briefing when an Afghan National Police officer fired on the group while enemies outside the base opened fire in a coordinated attack. Sheridan tells our host Olivia Nunn about that day and his actions that earned him the Silver Star. He also details his life after retiring from the Air Force and how he continues to serve now as a congressional staffer on Capitol Hill. You're deployed. And really, the, the story is centered around the year of 2013. So you earned a silver star, which is no easy feat. How did that happen? Sure. So in 2013, my special toxic squadron deployed. Uh, we did not deploy at the same time as our Green Beret counterparts. So we were falling into teams that were already operating in Afghanistan. Um, this was my fourth deployment to Afghanistan at this point. Um, so I was fairly experienced. Uh, I, I met up with my Green Beret team in the Wardak region of Afghanistan, which is known for being a very dangerous place. In fact, a friend of mine said, oh, you're going to Wardak, sleep with your boots on. And he was serious. He wasn't joking. Uh, so I linked up with the team. Um, they had been kind of on a lull because that area is mountainous and they were kind of snowed in and the fighters of the area had kind of retreated and were kind of waiting for the fighting season, so spring. Um, so it was February time. Frame. We were still going out on missions, still trying to keep presence known, but we knew it was probably going to be quiet for a few months while we were there. The ODA had already had at least two serious medevacs, uh, one concerned with the former team leader of the team who had lost his foot due to a 200-pound IED that went off underneath their truck. Their two-ago combat controller had also um, received a silver star for combat after being blown out of the vehicle in that incident. Um, so they, this team was familiar with, you know, a lot of fighting on that deployment. The team sergeant, the uh, Army EA, had already been medevaced once for being shot in the stomach and came, rehabbed and came back. So they were aggressive. Not all ODAs are aggressive. This team was aggressive. So me showing up, the team sergeant who had been shot sat me down and said, our last uh, CCT, I put in for a Silver Star. I expect that type of fighting out of you. That's the standard. And I took that seriously. Uh, being Ranger qualified, being a guy, you know, you, you show up on a team, 
if they're there and being serious about the mission, you need to bring it. So going into March, we were still in that lull. We were going on missions, but not a lot was going on. We That morning I got up and we started uh, prepping like we always do. And we just had this feeling. like It, it was almost a sense of something was different. You, you, it's really interesting how you can be in tune with, with just your surroundings. It just felt like we were being watched. We were being observed. It didn't feel the same as before. And I've had that discussion with my other Green Beret counterparts as we were setting up in the vehicle motor pool on side of our, inside of our little fob. And it just, we just had this presence about us and we're looking around thinking that are, are we being more observed than normal? Um, turns out we were. So the team meets up in the motor pool to do a external briefing between the team and its Afghan counterparts. We had Afghan special operations that lived with us. We had Afghan local police that also lived with us. And then we had joining us from outside of our base, Afghan local police and, and their affiliate forces. Um, we let them into our small base and they set up for our meeting. And as we met up to, in the motor pool, we kind of made like a football huddle, kind of like a tight 360, just to talk. It's loud. The vehicles are running. Uh, there's still a lot of movement going on. So we just kind of went into a tight little huddle and we were talking about what we're, where we're going, what we're going to do and how, how we're going to do it. And then we get into contact or our counters to that. I was standing next to the team captain, which is my job, always. We are each other's six on missions, so I always stand near him, and he was talking, finishing up the mission brief. As I was standing next to him, I remember kind of just looking to my left for no apparent reason, and I saw these little poofs, just like in the movie. And that was my thought is, huh. That's just like in the movies when they're shooting. And at that second, I heard the noise that I already visually saw of the gunshots. And as I looked behind us to see, I was able to see the gunner on the truck shooting the machine gun, who is about 15 meters away, right on us. And then I watched as those rounds went through the team leader's head into me as i then decided okay you gotta move i lost my audio acuity and all sound went deafening i couldn't hear anything and i started moving with everybody else towards the vehicles which were off to our left um, for cover as i got near the vehicle and i noticed that the team leader had already fallen I started to think, okay, you're either going to die or you're going to react. What's the react? And I instinctively, the ranger school works excellent in that. But the line of near ambush, the only thing you can do in a near ambush is turn and fight. That's the only solution. And it worked. So as I started to run into safety of the vehicles, I decided, okay, I've got my pistol. We're going to, we're going to do, we're going to counter this. I turned left after the vehicle and proceeded towards the gunner, who I could kind of see um, 
there's multiple RG33s in between me and him. So I then ran to the closest RG33 to him, which had a swing arm door that was open. So I, I pulled out my Glock and proceeded into the vehicle, popped open the hatch, and I said to myself, I hope this works. And I popped out and just went immediately into my train of finding the target, poisoning my gun on the target, and eliminating the target, which surprised the gunner who was at that point trying to finish off some other people who were still out in the open. Um, put a couple shots into him with my pistol, and then I dropped back down to, to figure out if I had a jam or if I need to reload. As I dropped back down into the vehicle, I noticed there were some people coming in after me into the vehicle. Grabbed an M4 and came back up. It was just a random M4 in the vehicle. And then same thing, breathing, breathing, target, trigger, trigger, squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. As he tried to hide himself at this point now underneath the vehicle and dropped down. I remember putting seven shots into him with the, with the M4 before he stopped moving. I knew he was no longer. Now, what I didn't know at this time is this was actually a complex ambush and that there was other people outside the FOB shooting in uh, who were affiliated with the uh, terrorists that had made their way into our compound. Um, standing in that porthole, I looked around and tried to survey, okay, well, are there other threats? And that's when I noticed the pile of bodies and the team leader and the team sergeant were, were face down on the ground. And my instincts told me at that time, it doesn't matter. You need to get to them. You need to secure your teammate. So I popped back down out of the portal, slung that random M4 that I found, and ran back the way I came. And on the way, I found one of the conventional soldiers next to one of the vehicles. And I grabbed him and said, we're going to go get the team captain. Just come with me. We went out, we grabbed the captain first, and delivered his body to safety, I noticed that he probably wasn't going to survive due to the nature of his injuries. I had actually, you know, been watching where the rounds had entered his body. Um, but set him down. The team medics, the, the uh, special forces medics, immediately started working on him. And then I went back for the team sergeant, who was my also responsibility. And when I, I remember when I grabbed him, he looked the same as the team captain, so I was very afraid that he was going to be gone too. And his, as I'm carrying him, his eyes pop open and he looked at me and he goes, how's my face? And I look at him and I go, you look beautiful, man. It was the only thing I could think to say. And the reason why I didn't know at the time he was asking that is because he couldn't see. A bullet has severed his optic nerve. And so he couldn't see. And so he's like, how's my face? But I told him he looked beautiful. It's all right. We're, you're going to be fine. And we get him back to safety in between the vehicles and the medics start working on him as well. Um, we did this a couple more times to go back for our Afghan special operations counterparts and protect them because they also took a lot of casualties that day too. Um, at this time, and then once we kind of secured everybody behind cover, I popped into one of the RG33s and made the first call to higher headquarters to let them know that, hey, we had a, a green on blue event. I need five helicopters. I need these capabilities to us. And oh, I need closer support. Um, they were confused at the time because they hadn't heard the call to let to say 
that we had left the fob. So the previous call that they heard from the team was, hey, we're getting ready to go on mission. And next thing they hear is, hey, we've got casualties. So they're like, what is going on? Thankfully, they immediately sent uh, medevac birds and aircraft, and they checked in with me. And I started working up a plan to get all the casualties out and get airstrikes on any potential targets who could be still going after us. For any listener that's uh, listening to this particular episode, please explain what green on blue means. Sure. Green on blue is a term that is not new. It is a term that was invented back, I believe, in the Vietnam era in that where a counterpart of your force who is not an American force, but your supporting force has engaged you and tried to kill you. Essentially, it is somebody who is either been turned to the other side um, or has a grievance. In a lot of the cases, they mentioned potentially with Afghan counterparts, there was a grievance you had defended them. Whatever have you, it is somebody who's supposed to be working with you who engages. Somebody that you least expect. Correct. Um, so. I'm wondering, did you know who this, this guy was? No. No. Again, I was fairly new. Uh, I think I'd only been there weeks, three weeks at that time. So I was still learning who was who. This actual um, enemy force was not people that we worked with day in, day out. They were Afghan um, military police, if I remember, AMP, if I remember correctly. So they didn't live with us. They didn't eat with us. Nobody that we were able to prove wasn't an insurgent actually was a part of the force that lived, eat, slept with us on a daily basis. And outsiders. And in fact, the chief of the police said a few days prior to this mission, he had been given these guys as relief soldiers and was told these are relief soldiers. They're, they're, they're fine. And so it was what it was. Um, our, my interpreters are Afghan special operations, um, fought to the death with us, you know, for us fought, fighting with us to, to save the FOB. They did excellent work that so I don't want any of that shame to fall onto them. And um, so, in fact, two of my interpreters are right there with me fighting um, to try to save the fall. And for that event, for that day, that day as it unfold, you were awarded the Silver Star. Yes. And for those that are listening, you know, Living, you know, and envisioning that day through your words, you cannot imagine what that day could have been. And, and you sit here, and, I'm, and I'm, we're in the studio, and, and, and I get the, uh, the honor to, to sit here next to you, to listen to your words, and to see you share this story. And, and being a veteran myself, you know, you're saying this, and reliving these moments, and and you can get through it. But we know for those that have worn the uniform, you're sharing the story, but you're going to relive those moments. So years have passed now, but there's a sticky residue that comes with that. What has it been like since those moments for you? So I would first say it was very helpful in that within 24 hours of the incident, I was 
on a video conference with our home station site dog. And we were starting to work through that event. And I made it very clear that I didn't want this to be my last event in Afghanistan. And I think there's something to that. And so they decided to send me to another ODA. And I was in 13 more gunfights after that. Two more ambushes, 13 more gunfights, another potential green on blue incident. And I think the reason why I am, what I would think being successful nowadays is, is that is part of it. Part of it is the care, but part of it is how you left your service and how you left those traumatic events. And I think I left them on top, but those scars are, 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 are there. It will always be something that goes with me. There was a time when, after the incident, when I met somebody, my brain would automatically configure the way they looked so I would see how they would look dead. And that was just a weird thing that your brains do to prepare yourself for bad days. Um, you know, sometimes it's day by day success, just like with everybody else, but you just have this, you know, these deep scars. Um, it's rough when you, when I see the captain's mom, you know, uh, cause she's a very loving person and you know that her only son is, is, you know, is no longer ever going to be around her. Um, so you, you, in some of that, maybe you're getting older too, you get a little bit more emotional than you were before. Um, but I'm lucky to be alive. I'm lucky to be served with the people I did because it wasn't just me, you know, that, they there there's things that they did that made sure that I also survived myself. Um you know, being in the Capitol riot was triggering to a certain degree. Um and you've I felt that like, okay, here's another fight, here's another time that uh where you think you're relatively safe, like I felt in that very morning, like I should be self-faced on my fob, that the threat was outside the fob, and then here I am in the Capitol building and the fight is all of a sudden on and on. Again, and it's very, it was very disheartening. Um, I, I take my hat off to the medical professionals that look after the soldiers and motive initiatives, preservation of the force, and things like that. That when I got home, or excuse me, let me take that back. Twenty four hours, I was talking to a psych doc, and then before I came home, my home station psych doc was talking with me right then and there to make sure I was good to go, and then. They were part of my organization, and so I could see them on any day. I could have coffee with them and work through those issues. And I, and I know those things are why I'm able to continue to work and be a positive part of society. So I want to take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to talk about your life after the military because you've you continued to serve. This episode is sponsored by Mo Insurance Plans, administered by Association Member Benefits Advisors. I'm here with retired Chief Master Sergeant Mark Stevenson, U.S. Air Force veteran, and Mo is Senior Director for Business Development and Products and Services. And we're going to talk about Mo Insurance Plans. Thanks for being here, Mark. Tony, thanks for having me. So the Mo Insurance Plans program, this serves tens of thousands of members. Why is the Mo Insurance program so important? So, Tony, to start, this is a MOA-endorsed product, and it provides members access to a variety of insurance plans. It offers TRICARE supplement insurance, we have life insurance policies, a pet insurance plan, and much more. Plus, MOA is always looking for new products to evolve with our members' needs and evaluate existing programs to ensure we continue to meet MOA's high standards. Those are a lot of offerings. What are the most popular plans for members? 
So programs such as our pet insurance will continue to grow in popularity, but term life insurance and our MetaPlus TRICARE supplement plans remain the most popular, and our MetaPlus program is absolutely the largest plan. Tell me more about the MetaPlus TRICARE supplement insurance plan. and What makes it so popular? So this plan is specifically for those under age 65, and it pairs with TRICARE to help pay expenses not fully reimbursed by TRICARE. These include cost shares, co-pays, prescription drug co-pays, and several others. What do members say about MetaPlus? So first, MOA's endorsement of MetaPlus certainly makes our members more comfortable with this valuable plan. Our members are very pleased with the policy and the quick payments to their health care providers. And due to our electronic claims process, their claims are automatically paid to their providers without needing to complete any paperwork. This all leads to prompt, hassle-free payments for our members. One more question. How can members find out more about these programs? So members can learn more about MetaPlus and other MOA endorsed insurance plans by visiting our website at www.moainsurance.com. So just before the break, we talked about what earned you the Silver Star. And such an incredible story of heroism. And listening to you, there are just no words for that. There really isn't. And thank you for sharing that, truly. So you retired, and you continue to give back. Tell us about that. So when I made the decision to retire, it it was the, the feeling of I thoroughly enjoyed my service and the things that I was able to do and the people I loved, the people I worked with. But I knew I was in some sense tired. And needed to do something, um, but I still wanted to find an avenue where I could serve. Um, so I started thinking about, you know, the different sectors of government, and so I was lucky enough to find the Senate job postings and started soliciting for jobs in the Senate. And I was fortunate enough that I got hired and started working in the Capitol building right after my retirement, and it was. It was good. It was a different vantage point, more public facing, uh, so more open than special operations was to outside speculation and discussion and um, what have you. And I felt like, again, like this is good. I'm contributing. I'm I'm literally in the Capitol building helping out. And uh, it felt very surreal, just like when I first joined SOF. It felt surreal that how quickly you could be in some place so unique and specific. and, and I think that a lot of vets continue to want to do that. They want to serve in different capacities, whether it's nonprofits, whether it's um, public companies, but it's really, you know, looking to make, make good, do good things. Um, it's been good. I've been for three years now working in different uh, parts of either the Capitol building or the Senate. Um, and the work is good. And I feel like I'm contributing. Was a struggle, as I said before, after the Capitol riot to kind of say, you know, is is this worth the risk that I could potentially that I thought wasn't there, but is really there um, to serve again, even though I've given a lot, and that's in a lot of ways at this point in my life, like you mentioned earlier, you know, when I look at relatives who want to serve or thinking about serving, I almost pause and think, well, our family's given a lot. Every uncle except one has served. All their sons and daughters have served. 
maybe you should take a break and pursue you know something else and um yeah less than one percent serve right actually you know the the statistic is 0.45 percent of the nation serves right we are truly less than one percent and when you peel back that that percentage and when you ask today's recruits and you say hey why did you join they will say 80% of those new recruits will say, well, I had a great conversation with someone about joining the military. And we could sit there and clap our hands and pat ourselves on the back. And we're like, yeah, they had a great conversation. And here's the truth, though, that 80%, they had a great conversation with a relative. So we're asking the same families to give of themselves over and over, generation after generation. We can't do that. You can't keep asking families, and your family has sacrificed for four generations, and we've we've got to do better. But here's the truth: at the same time, our population of what's available to be able to serve is the same population that all these colleges are recruiting from. We have a problem in America. We have problems with obesity. We have problems with people who are qualified to be able to join. Because the truth is. You have to have qualification to be able to go into the military. We're asking you to do something that's actually kind of tough. And we want the best and the brightest to join. And here's the other thing. Joining the military, it is a great doorway of opportunity because you will come out a changed person. And it's going to be an amazing ride. And you know that. I know that. Right? Yes. It is well worth it. It's. And it's an experience that you can't replicate with anything else. Um, you have the pride that no one can take away from you that you serve your nation. And then you have the experience in the people that you worked with, whether it's internally other Americans and it, or working with other militaries or just being in other nations. You have those experiences that really develop you into a holistic person and having this great understanding of, of, or greater understanding of the world than you would have if you had just stayed in Springfield, Virginia. And so it is a great experience. And I wish more people whose families, like you said, didn't carry that rucksack as much, you know, would would get that opportunity to share that experience and maybe have more people understand what it is to serve and to sacrifice for your nation in those capacities. DeLorean, thank you so very much for sharing your story, for being with us today. To our listeners, continuously check back every week because we still have more powerful stories coming at you for season three. And you can find more at www.moa.org slash podcast. The Never Stop Serving podcast is the official podcast of the Military Officers Association of America. Produced by Tony Lombardo, Kevin Lilly, and Mike Moronis, and hosted by Lieutenant Colonel Olivia Nunn, U.S. Army Retired. MOAA is the largest and most influential association of military officers. Learn how you can be a part of it at www.moaa.org.